Welcome to Dungeons and Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop roleplay and philosophy. Okay, do you want to introduce us? Are we going to start? So we're going to, I mean, we have the intro music, like, do 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 Dungeons and yeah, Dialectics yeah. that you've heard, because yeah. I know you've listened to every episode multiple times. I actually have listened to the second episode, yeah. I listened to the first episode one time, but the audio was so bad, I didn't want to listen again. It was pretty miserable. We, um, That's okay. <laughs> we got more feedback on that. I asked Daniel what he thought, and he said, I didn't listen to it because it was so hard to understand. Uh, that's a bunch of bullshit. I understood everything. It just sounded terrible. <laughs> it did sound terrible. Um, okay. So so I've been uh, I've been housing the illustrious Max S for a week because his juicy ass was chased out of the South into the worst part of the South by a big hurricane, which is where I am. Wow, that's really unfortunate because Max is a sucky guest. Max sucks, and many of our listeners probably have died in this hurricane, but unfortunately, Max wasn't among them. That is, you know, if hurricanes are good for one thing... Yeah. Well, it wasn't good for the thing that it's supposed to be good for, so... Well, that's the point. If they were good for one thing, this would be it, but apparently they're not. But they're not good, no. I bought some D&D minis also. Really? Why? Uh Uh-huh. Why? Because I'm, you know, just that kind of guy now. Wow. I got like 16 ugly posters for my apartment. I got a Turbo Man action figure. I got fake cobwebs. Uh, I got a line of action figures at a 99 cent store, and I got D&D minis. So now it's officially the most pimp, baller-ass pad in all of the South or wherever. You know, long-time listeners may remember that in the first episode we mentioned that Matt... Long-time listeners... A lot of time listeners have talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah, that Matt is moving. He has now moved into his new... I moved. As he said, baller-ass pad in the Baller-ass pad in the the shittiest part of the South, yeah. Go ahead and put in the comments Um, where you think that is. I'll give you two guesses. You'll figure it out. (laughs) But um, I got got two Illithids slash Mind Flayers. That's awesome. I love Mind Flayers. Are you... Me too. I'm a big Mind Flayer fan. I'm going to throw this out there, Matt. Mind flayers are typically not played as a player ancestry. Are you Mm -hmm. thinking of dungeon mastering? Well, you know what, Joey? It's interesting you say that. Am I thinking of dungeon mastering? Well, thank you um, for repeating the thing I said. Am I thinking of dungeon mastering? Well, Joey, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. Are you thinking thinking, of dungeon mastering? I'm thinking of dungeon mastering asterisk because uh, I have nothing to do here. I mean, I'm really busy with work, but when I'm not working, there's literally nothing to do in this town except... Uh, perhaps catch uh, a disease that's killed thousands of people. So I'm thinking about buying the DM guide plus the monster manual and learning how to play the game. Wow, that's a big step. Wait one second. My guest had something to say. One second. What's that? Honey Heist. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, my guest brings up that I was supposed to write um, Honey Heist Part 3 like 16 months ago. But you know what? I have a lot of big ideas. They're still percolating. We'll see what happens. I see. Well... If I might be so bold as to suggest an activity that you could spend your time doing, mm-hmm. we could maybe crank out a podcast more often than once every 16 weeks. That's true. We could do that. I feel like once a week, is, is we could do it. 
We could. We could. Once you a know, week is a lot. We could do it. And we'll do we it. Could. The only reason we took such a long break is I had to move. That's true. That's true. We did try to get together several times, but... Well, I heard that that Max is starting his own podcast to compete with ours. Yeah. That's right. That's what he told me. Tunnels and Trollectics. Did he say that? Yeah, that's that what the, he said. That the, that's what the, the title That's is. what the name was? Yeah. Wow. What a stupid fucking joke. Not you know, funny. That's what I said as well, because Trollectics mm. is not even a philosophy term. It's not a philosophy term, and also, uh, as we learned from last week's episode, the game Troll is stupid. Tunnels and Trolls. Was that the name of the? That was the name of the, the game. The game. Oh, okay. Well, Max's joke is perhaps slightly better now, but still, it was it's terrible game. Also, it's bigoted. Isn't it, is it like bigoted. the new version is bigoted? Yeah. Well, yeah. fuck you, Max. Yeah. But we're not talking about Max anymore on the show. He told me he thought we were talking about him too much, so let's talk about Faraz instead. Oh, tell us about Faraz. Um, he came up with a new D and D character idea. Let's hear it. Okay, so he said his big new idea was he's going to play Jesus Christ and every time someone is going to like try to attack an enemy he's going to be a pacifist and say something like uh for for every for every point of dps you do to this enemy you you do it to me too that's deep uh well yeah, actually that works for the podcast right cuz this is like a theology podcast too yeah philosophy theology political theory and also some role-playing games sometimes legal theory oh i can't wait for that episode <laughs> i actually do have a theology question about that for you now that we brought it up about jesus um, yeah about jesus i don't know how much you know about him i mean you don't seem that interested in that part of christianity but well you know there's a lot of christianity to go around and jesus is a very small part uh is that true no Oh. I was joking. I, I thought it would be funny. I think the audience will appreciate the humor. I don't know. I could I feel like your postmodern Christianity, I could see someone being like, Yeah, Jesus is not that important actually. I would call myself more of like an absurdist Christian than a postmodern Christian. But... Oh, so like like uh, Kierkegaard or whatever? You know, I don't know a whole lot about Kierkegaard. I've read like mm. a bunch of absurdist literature, like Camus and Kafka. Okay, but... you should probably read Kierkegaard. Maybe I should read Kierkegaard. For next week. You know, read he, all of his books. Yes. That's a promise. By next mm -hmm. week's episode, I will have read the entire corpus of Kierkegaard's work. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, but what I was going to ask oh, yes. about Jesus quickly, just quickly, quickly, quickly. Um, what Would he do that? Like, would he just, if a bunch of fucking people were attacking me and I was trying to defend myself, you know, trying to exercise my Second Amendment rights, brother, would, uh, would Jesus just say... I'm not going to, I'm going to let you kill me or I'm going to, if, even if, if you try to defend yourself, uh, you have to kill me. Is that, is that, is that what Faraz is getting at here? So Faraz, Faraz is making specific reference to a passage in the Bible. Okay. Um, which is, I think it's like Matthew 25 okay. and Jesus says, Oh, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done also mm. for me. And he's mm -hmm. talking about, oh, if you have given clothes to people without clothes and given food to people without food, basically that's, that is equivalent to how you are treating me, the son of God, right. Jesus. Right. Um, so think about what you're going to do. And so if you, if you were to like shoot somebody, that's how you were yeah. treating Jesus. Right. Um, so I do you think, think Jesus is a pacifist? 
So that's a great question. I would say yes. And not because of that verse, because I think that that's a particularly weak verse to structure your argument about pacifist Jesus on. Okay. I think that better verses or better like little anecdotes from the life of Jesus would be when he is being taken to be crucified. When the guards mm. show up and they say, hey, we're going to kill you. Some of his disciples get up and they're going to fight. And Simon cuts off the one guard's ear. And Jesus says, stop, put away your sword. Mm-hmm. It's over. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting like gonna... interpretation yeah. of that passage, Joey. Because normally when I hear people talking about that, like mainstream, I mean, not even mainstream, but like more, you know, fundamentalist types of, yeah. of Christian people, their only interest in that passage is insofar as he has some sort of metaphysical like insight into what is going to happen to him mm-hmm. and the necessity of that for the forgiveness of sins. So they normally interpret that passage as having really nothing to do with like actual violence or yeah. pacifism or what have you, but merely some kind of uh, salvatory uh, soteriological uh, purpose. Yeah. yeah, I would say probably expiatory um, expiatory would be a better word for the listeners at home who are not steeped in theological terminology. Expiatory okay. basically means a sacrificial lamb. So yes, someone who will be the scapegoat for your sins or your right. wrongdoings or whatever has an expiatory function. You know, there's kind of the more well-known, I would say, interpretation of Christ's death and resurrection that's very common in the United States, especially among fundamentalists mm-hmm. and a lot of Protestant denominations. That is, it's called substitutionary atonement which is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus dies as a punishment for our sins so that we are not, so that we don't have to be punished for our sins. By God. Um, By God, exactly. Um, And it's called substitutionary atonement because we are atoned by Jesus' sacrifice, not by any sacrifice on our own part. And... There are other interpretations of why Christ has to die and the relation of Christ's death to human sin. Mm-hmm. But just to jump back to the, the pacifism um, of Jesus, there are a lot of people that will look at Jesus's call to, if your neighbor strikes you on the cheek, turn on the right cheek, turn and offer him your left as an indication that when violence is committed against you, mm-hmm. you should respond with varying degrees of, um, like your your response should be passive in some way. And right. so different theologians or um, other people who have opinions will argue the degree to which you should be passive, whether you are totally not resisting the violence that is committed against you or whether you are simply being pacifist in your resistance, or whether you're taking a stance of what some people will call non-resistance, which is that you aren't resisting the evil that is being done to you, but you are taking a stance and you're making a statement and you are in a certain way disarming the violent actors as they act against you by acting in a way that is contrary to what you would expect. And sort of like disrupts the cycle of violence. 
Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I have a, another question about this then. You know, in the 20th century, and I think also the late 19th century, there was the movement in the United States, the theological movement. Uh, what was it called? It's not the prosperity gospel, I'll tell you that. It's the, <laughs> it's the other one. Social gospel. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Social gospel movement. And the social gospel movement was, you know, insisted that before or in addition to perhaps cleansing spiritual, you know, sins of the traditional variety, um, and before we could expect any sort of second coming, however you see that, right, we needed to um, first deal also with social sin and social evil, mm -hmm. right, which includes, you know, um, social justice issues, issues of income inequality, and all these kinds of things, except maybe not with those precise terms, but yeah. same idea. So what do you think, if you have to have a passive element to be sort of modeling your life on the, on the, on the dispositions of Jesus, a social gospel seems to require that we take a somewhat aggressive stance to what we might call corporate or group agents, right? So a corporation is a group agency insofar as it's not a person, but there's a sense in which we can attribute actions and, and what have you to yeah. corporations rather than particular individuals making up corporations. Yeah. So it seems like there's a difficulty, perhaps anyway, if we need to be passive towards individuals in our interpersonal lives, but also aggressive or active toward group agencies in our attempts to deal with um, social sin. How do you think Jesus would respond to this? That's a great question. And so I just want to clarify that different authors and theologians will argue the degree to which you should be passive. Okay. So... People are not saying that you do nothing, although there mm -hmm. are those who will cite other parts of the gospel and say, just as Jesus has said, um, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough worries of its own right. or God has fed the birds and clothed the animals and sustains them. So too will God sustain you. Mm -hmm. Um, just as some people will take that to mean we do not have to do anything about what's happening in the world. Right. We just have to like trust that it is in God's hands, which a lot of theologians and um, particularly theologians that were part of both the social gospel movement that you're mentioning, yep. but a lot of different movements um, throughout the world, like political theology in the 20th century in like Germany and western europe liberation theology in latin america and then it's sort of like spin-offs um after the 60s and 70s in other parts of the world and 80s um that are saying no that's not you're taking these verses out of context and it is obvious if you look at the kind of whole story that the bible is telling and particularly the gospels and especially exodus in um in liberation theology is really important it's kind of like a, a very foundational text um if you look at the whole of that message it's clear that there is a social component to christianity and that right. it requires social action and there is there is sort of a general agreement among protestant theologians that nonviolence is preferable if not mandated 
-hmm. Whereas in the Catholic Church, for example, you have just war theory or jus ad bellum. I don't speak Latin, but that's... I can tell. You sound like shit. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, I'm more of a Greek kind of guy. Oh, okay. Interesting. It is really interesting. What a fascinating It's all Greek to me. (laughs) I was really hoping you would say that. But there are a number of criteria. It has to be a just cause for it to count as just war. It has to... You have to have, like, what's called a competent authority. It can't just be random or some yahoos out in the woods doing this. There has to be some kind of authority behind it. It has to have a good intention. It has to be likely to succeed. It has to be... um, And it has to be a last resort. So, again, nonviolence is preferable, but as a last resort, you can have what's called a just war, certainly according to some Catholic thinkers. And also, a lot of people accuse liberation theologians in Latin America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with advocating for violence that took place as part of the revolutionary movements that transpired in the latter half of the 20th century. That is somewhat true in some cases in that Mm -hmm. there were clergy people that participated in these movements, whether they actually fired weaponry or whether they sheltered um, guerrilla forces right with that said the vast majority of liberation theologians were not advocating for violence and were in fact very critical of the guerrilla movements naturally all of these liberation theologians are a lot more critical of the powerful the oppressors the right-wing regimes throughout latin america because these regimes are guilty of what ignacio de curia would call a primary violence, which is they are the ones that are inciting violence and causing this violence, and that is different and worse than the secondary violence that arises as a response to primary violence. Right. Gustavo Gutierrez also talks about this and points out that the deeper sin is whatever is causing more death. And so the structural violence and the structural sin that these um, states are committing, that this private enterprise is committing, that the military is committing, that the death squads are committing, that is so much worse and so much more devastating and death-causing and thereby sinful than the secondary violence that arises as a response. And that many people feel that the secondary violence, this violent uprising in response to this, this revolutionary violence, is justified and necessary. It's similar to just war theory in that it has to be justified in its goals and there has to be a competent authority, the competent authority in this case being the um, the impoverished and the marginalized or what was called back in the 70s, the poor. Oh, okay, interesting. But in some ways, the like sureness of success is not as big of a priority for liberation theologians liberation theologians in general recognize that when you are resisting oppression the most likely outcome and what necessarily will happen is you will die because this oppressive machine that brings death will defend itself and it's only or its mechanism of defense is causing more death so those that rise up against it will often die and that's what happens to Oscar Romero or Martin Luther King Jr. or 
all these other like martyrs throughout history. So it's a little bit different in that way. Right. And again, I need to stress that the vast majority of liberation theologians are advocating against violence of any kind while recognizing the nuance of what kind of violence is being done by whom and to whom. There's a complicated justificatory pathway here also. So insofar as one's either a Marxist or has Marxist affinities, which many you know liberation theologians did at the time yeah. and still do, one can obviously one could you know be in favor of violence okay that might not be justifiable in in marx's terms but i'm just saying one could be in favor of violence but one could also take the slightly more complicated position that recognizes a uh violence is either unfortunate or even immoral in some cases but also b it may be that it's dialectically necessary right for the development of the historical situation what do you and mean when you say dialectically necessary? So insofar as the current stage of development that's, you know, obtains at a given time um, contains internal contradictions of various forms, it will be the case on one of these systems that necessarily the stage of development will collapse and, you know, that will then lead to various either a new stage or, you know, violence and a new stage or whatever. It's all, you know, sort of contingent upon the content of, of the stage of history in question. So, so when, when uh, you a liberation s- theologian could hypothet... Oh, yeah, go on, go on, go on. When you say may necessarily provoke collapse, and through mm-hmm. that collapse, advancing to or shifting to a new stage of development, when you say necessarily, yep. you mean that this is simply a natural consequence of the way that the world is structured at this whatever point in history. Is that right? At a given time. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the something roughly like that's the appropriate way to understand the necessity in question. Mm-hmm. It's the notion that reality plus our social structures or whatever are such that this will happen, you yeah. know? And it doesn't mean one has to, and you know, what obtains afterward as a result could be positive or perhaps arguably negative. I'm not sure if that's mm-hmm. orthodox, but it, you know, whatever. But on the hypothesis that what could obtain is positive, one could then, I think, consistently recognize either excesses or even all of the relevant, like revolutionary actions as immoral in and of themselves while simultaneously saying, A, it's necessary, and B, what obtains is uh, good. So, Almost a shorter way of saying this would be that some people say the ends justify the means. Are you trying to do transition? I'm not trying to do transition. I'm trying to, you and I are getting into a sort of really heady space right now. Okay, let me put it simply. using a lot of complex language. And I'm trying to see if we can simplify it, both because I'm trying to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Yes. And also because, let me me put it simply. I think that Max is going to find this part really boring. Yeah, Max is dumb, but um, it's not that the ends justify the means, because when we say the ends justify the means, we usually use that to mean that the means are like ethically acceptable because of the ends. Mm-hmm. And it could be that the means are ethically unacceptable, but the end is a good thing. And so we can consistently critique the means whereby the end was obtained, while also uh, being in favor of the end that obtained. Yep. And I think that's a reasonable position for a liberation theologian to take. Yes, I would agree with that. Okay, should I, can I log off or what?
yeah, you can log off unless you have something else that you want to say to to myself. Or the no, I don't think so. Just uh, you want to try to do something with alignments. I guess we can think about topics related to alignments. Yeah, I think you could do something about alignments. You could um a couple of things that I think are interesting.